Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Sports, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University. My usual gig on the network is as host of New Books and Genocide Studies. But today, as I do occasionally, I'm pinch hitting as host of New Books and Sports. As I do so, I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to Kelly Bellinger, author of the wonderful new book, Invisible Seasons, Title IX and the Fight for Equity in College Sports. A few years ago, when I was in graduate school, I attended Ohio State University, and I've been a fan of college football and basketball since I was a kid, and so it's natural that shortly after I got to Ohio State, I reserved the student tickets I was eligible for. Anybody who's done this will know what comes next. I got the tickets, but unlike the fourth row seats I had as an undergrad, I sat as close to the back row as the ticket office could easily stash me. I duly went to the games, I enjoyed the view from above, and I freely speculated about why I was seated so far back. But I also wanted to see basketball, a sport I had loved since I was a very little kid, um, from closer up. So for almost the first time in my life, I bought tickets to watch uh, a women's basketball team, team, the Ohio State uh, women's basketball team. And I was in luck. That first year uh, that I was there was the first season for Katie Smith. Uh, Some of you may have heard of Katie Smith. She was a future star of the as-yet-unborn WNBA. And she was joined that year by a number of excellent players. They won the game I was at. And eager to see excellent basketball, I went back again and again. and, And frankly, by the end of the season, I had fallen in love with women's basketball. What I didn't understand at that point was how recently universities had devoted anything like sufficient resources to women's basketball, let alone other women's sports. It's a story I've become more familiar with in my research since then, but it's an experience Kelly Bellinger lived. Bellinger played basketball at Michigan State in the mid-1980s, a time when women athletes there and across the country were struggling to take advantage of new legislation that seemed to promise equity in funding and opportunities. Her book is a case study of that broader struggle, centered on the women's basketball team in the years before she arrived. It's a book that fits into several categories, history, women's studies, rhetorical studies, maybe others. Whatever you call it, it's a fantastic book. I'm looking forward to digging into it with her. So, Kelly, with that, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Sports. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, we always start out giving you a chance, giving guests a chance to, to say a little bit about, about who they are and how they got there. Um, and so, you teach English uh, at Valparaiso. Maybe you can say a little bit about how you went from a college athlete to becoming a professional academic. Okay. Well, my journey there really begins like yours did at Ohio State. Um, there, I went to graduate school, really partly because I was wanting to experience what it was like to go to school without all of the time-consuming investment in sports Hmm. that I was used to from my undergrad years. And so I really looked forward to the idea of just uh, getting a master's degree and maybe um, teach code to the high school level. 
but while I was at Ohio State, I got very interested in a program there that was really growing in rhetoric and writing in the English department. It was a part of English that I didn't even know existed, and it just became very interesting to me, partly because my job as a grad assistant there was teaching writing, and I realized, wow, I could make a career out of doing this and actually creating writing programs for entire universities. So that's where I really got hooked on the idea of teaching writing and designing writing programs. So I've had the opportunity to do just that at a number of different universities and different types of universities. Um, so um, that's been interesting too, just seeing what it's like to teach writing in different hmm. contexts. And um, so I've been at Youngstown State University, University of Wyoming, Virginia Tech, and now Valparaiso University. So how much is sports still part of your life? Well, um, you know, I think this is one interesting thing I found in my research is that mm. a lot of women athletes aren't necessarily the biggest fans of sports. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know the whole sociology behind that, but I'm typical, I guess, in that way. I, I've never been a fanatical follower of women's or men's sports. Mm. Um, and I, I think back when I, I think I was interested in learning a little bit about this, even in my own research in Title IX. And I discovered that when I was a first-year college student in 1982, that was actually the first year that there was an NCAA tournament for women's basketball. Mm -hmm. And so the whole March Madness you know, phenomenon wasn't really something that was there for women's sports, which I think creates a lot of fans. Um, I certainly – I come from a fanatical sports family in a way. My, you know, my parents, my sisters, they love watching sports. Um, so anyway, I guess this is a long way of saying I, I love sports. I love being athletic. I love working out. Um, and, and in that sense, sports is a huge part of my life. I wouldn't want to go a day if I had to without, um, being active. I guess as I've gotten older, it's gotten a little bit less, uh, a pickup basketball game mm -hmm. and more going on a hike or a mountain bike ride. Um, and that's been kind of a transition, but I've always, um, I still, love being active. That, that distinction you raise about uh, fans and, and, and gender is an important one, and I want to come back to that at the end. Um, but, but for now, why did you decide to write this book? Well, I got interested in writing this book when I was at the University of Wyoming and directing the writing program there. And part of it was that I, was, I had done so much work with administration that I wanted to spend some time as a scholar. <laughs> And that was a big motivation right there to make that transition and see what it was like to, you know, really get into a topic in depth. Mm -hmm. And so, but then the question became what topic? And my research prior to that had always been on writing and writing programs. And I thought it would be really interesting to see what it was like to write about something and research something more um, tied to my personal life and um, some aspect of my own identity, not so much as a scholar. And I had a chance to um, audit a women's studies seminar um, for a semester. And that got me, we watched uh, the movie Bend It for Beckham, mm -hmm. Bend It Like Beckham. Mm -hmm. um, and that made me think about the place of sports in women's studies. And at that time, you know, I think it was still a relatively new area of interest in women's studies, and it's still maybe not the largest mm -hmm you know, area within women's studies that people get interested in research and write about. Um, 
but more than it was then. And so I thought, well, what, what might I want to learn more about? And so I got interested in combining that with my interest in writing and rhetoric, and I thought, well, maybe I will tr see what kind of books or articles have been written by women athletes about mm -hmm. athletics in some way. And so I started compiling a list of things, and somewhere on that list I had a book that I knew of through my sister who played college volleyball at Kentucky, and her coach had written a book um, called Gender in Competition, and I, you know, I also knew her coach because she had been a women's basketball player and volleyball player at Michigan State where I played basketball. So I knew of this woman, Kathy DeBoer, and I, so I put her on my list of women athlete authors to interview. Mm -hmm. And when I went to visit her in Lexington, Kentucky, where I think at the time she had just gotten done, she'd, done, she'd finished her work as a coach, and she, then she became an athletic administrator. Then she became the city manager for Lexington, Kentucky, and now she's head of the uh, women or the, the volleyball coaches, huh. National Volleyball Coaches Association for not just women, all volleyball. Um, and I interviewed her about her book, and her husband was there, Mark Pittman, and during the course of our talking, briefly, it came up about um, her experience when she was at Michigan State, and she'd been involved in a controversy related to Title IX. And I knew about that a little bit, because I, from my time at Michigan State, I knew that there had been a lawsuit, um, and I knew that um, I didn't really know the whole story. I just knew there was some sort of tension around that, that um, it was very important to our coaches that we took full advantage of our right to have um, the same amount of money for our food um, when we went to eat on road trips and things like that. And it seemed kind of odd to us as players. Why are our coaches so concerned about hmm. this? You know, why does it have to be something we think so much about and make certain that we get, you know, our what we deserve, sort of? Because I think, you know, coming in, it wasn't, um, I hadn't thought a lot about those kind of issues too much. Um, but And it was really a big deal because this lawsuit, as I found out later, was still going on. It hadn't been fully settled. It was a class action suit that I was actually part of, unbeknownst <laughs> to me. <laughs> um and so were all my teammates, uh, and it, but it wasn't something we really knew much about. Huh. So Kathy, you know, had just a line about it um, in her book, not much. It was, she sort of dismissed it almost as her angry feminist stage um, <laughs> and went on to talk about other things. Um, but I started asking her a few questions about it um, when I was interviewing her, and her husband, uh, Mark Pittman, had been the women's cross-country coach at the same time um, at Michigan State in the 70s. And he came up from the, their basement with a big box of materials. And it was newspaper clippings and notes. And it turned out also this really detailed chronology that he had kept about the whole Title IX controversy and then lawsuit that took place at Michigan State while he was coaching um, the women's cross-country team as a graduate student. And Kathy, who he later married, um, was a women's basketball and volleyball star. Um, and so he had wanted to write a book, but hmm. decided not to, um, but kept all these really interesting notes. And he kind of said, you know, hey, Kelly, maybe you want to look at all this stuff. Um, <laughs> feel, free to, feel free to write a book about it if you want to. <laughs> so um, I got really interested. As I started looking through the notes, I 
I really got intrigued by some of the characters um, mm. sort of in this real-life story. Um, the attorney that they hired, Jean Ledwith King, I started reading some newspaper articles about her, and she was a, a real interesting person in her own right. And her career was very fascinating, and she just had some great sound bites and quotes and things. I thought, wow, what a person. Um, and just I started to see, wow, this is like a really interesting collection of characters. And so I just kept reading more, learning more, and I thought, you know, maybe Title IX um, could be my focus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could do it through the lens of this story of what happened at Michigan State, and I could um, interview everyone involved in it, but also look at the scholarly literature, look at the national context. But it seemed like it could be a good contribution to the literature on Title IX to explain the law and all the struggle it took to really you know, implement it and make it have meaning um, in particular institutional contexts. But what if I did it through a story um, of these real people and give readers a chance to get to know them a little bit and to really be um, immersed in a story and along the way to learn some of these more intricacies of Hmm. the law and the legal processes. And I'm going to give you a chance in in just a minute to kind of give capsule summaries of some some of the main characters in your story. But I know that the audience here is is, is not just American, and so may not know quite know much about Title IX. Can, so can you take just a minute or two and say what what Title IX is, and and what kind of debates drove the discussion about the guidelines about how it would be implemented? Okay. Um, I'm just going to start by just reading the actual words of the the law because it's very short. And the first thing that most people notice if they pay careful attention, it seems like 39 words or something like that, is that um, the word athletics and sports is not in it at all. And that surprises a lot of – that surprised a lot of people in the past. Although today, um, I think Hmm. this generation is starting to – See that they know they know about Title IX because of its application to education as it relates to sexual assault and sexual harassment and things like that. That it's always covered, but the focus early on um, became sports um, because that was such a controversial thing in the 70s. So anyway, um, I'm just going to go ahead and read the mm-hmm. words of the law first. So it says, "No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex," be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So this was Title IX, this is Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. Someone asked me the other day what title, what the amendment, the amendments were amending. <laughs> and after writing this 400-page book, you would have thought I could answer that question really easily. Um, and in fact, in all the books I read about Title IX, yeah. I couldn't, I, I can't really remember anyone actually spelling that out. Mm-hmm. So I did some searching about it, and I don't even have my list here, but it amended about four or five different education-related mm-hmm. acts, um, vocational education, and three or four other things. So, you know, it's just sort of another example of how little sometimes we as citizens understand about how the law works. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, um, you know, it's a law that prohibits sex discrimination in educational programs and programs or activities that are receiving federal financial assistance. So all those words became really important in the 
history of how Title IX got interpreted, because what is an educational program? <laughs> what is yeah. an educational activity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of federal financial assistance matters? Um, and I think it, all those things had to be debated and worked out. Um, what if a school is a private school and it only gets federal tax dollars for research grants that faculty might be awarded and student financial assistance, but they don't get other federal tax dollars? Do they still have to follow um, Title IX? Mm-hmm. And questions like that had to be answered. What is an educational program? Does that mean, does that include athletics? Um, what if uh, tax dollars are coming to other parts of the school but not directly to athletics? Can, you know, do they need to, does athletics need to even be part of Title IX? So there were just all these questions that came up in trying to define this very simple sounding law. Um, and people in Congress, for the most part, never imagined that sports were going to become such a big issue with Title IX. <laughs> so, so one, you set your story in a period where this debate about how to implement and how to evaluate compliance with Title IX is being, um, is being conducted mostly in, in Washington by various federal agencies, um, especially the Office of Civil Rights. What is the state of women's sports at Michigan State before Title IX is passed? Well, interestingly, um, Michigan State was... Um, a leader in some ways. Um, the women's sports program at Michigan State was was pretty good mm-hmm. compared to a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a really terrific softball team. Uh, they had a really great volleyball team. Um, they they it was a place where women athletes wanted to go and play sports, and um, they were a leader in hiring um, Nell Jackson to lead their women's athletic program. She was an African-American outstanding athlete herself in track and field who had been an Olympic coach. Um, And so there were many ways in which Michigan State was kind of a leader in women's sports. Mm -hmm. But as Title IX came into the picture, um, it sort of awakened consciousness all around. And I think Michigan State sort of maybe rested, became a little too complacent Hmm. and didn't realize that everyone was sort of being challenged to step up even more. Um, And so while they were originally sort of ahead of the game in some ways, when the game changed and it became more about equality and, um, you know, the stakes got raised for everyone. Um, So, you know, you could focus on the ways in which things were very unequal at Michigan State, and it certainly was true there and Mm -hmm. everywhere, but they actually had a pretty good budget there for women's sports, even though it was some minute percentage compared to what the men's sports budget was. Mm -hmm. Um, It was still pretty good compared to a lot of other women's sports programs, at least in those days right before Title IX. Um, yet, you know, if you really just compared men's and women's athletics at Michigan State or anywhere in those days, the differences were just um, shocking to some people today who couldn't imagine um, women not having scholarships yeah. um, at all or, you know, just a few dollars to maybe help them buy a book or two. And then there were men, men's teams getting full scholarships. And and that's something that I find students today don't don't realize 
that the discrepancies were that huge, um, you know, 40 years ago, 40 some years ago. Yeah, I was really struck in reading reading your kind of the beginning of your book at how many athletes who who played at Michigan State actually transferred there from very small schools. I'm thinking of Calvin College in particular, schools where at least at this point in time, it would be almost unheard of where an athlete who who had started at a small school would be good enough to play at a Big Ten university. Mm-hmm. Well, that was partly, I think, because the AIAW yeah. um, was governing women's sports, and so the AIAW didn't um, separate out the size of the school so much, and they didn't allow recruiting um, and so you had championships within the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. So a small school and a large school, they were, they were somewhat interchangeable when it came to athletics. There weren't, you know, there weren't big schools that could offer full rides, whereas the smaller schools didn't have the funds for that, um, as we see more now under the NCAA um, and just what Title IX sort of ushered in. And so that's sort of when you look at the history of women's sports, you see some of these little schools like um, Immaculata, a small mm-hmm. Catholic school mm-hmm. um, that, that won, you know, a whole string of national championships. Um, and yet, you know, today it would be really hard for a very small school to achieve that, even though that's what we all enjoy so much about um, <laughs> the tournaments. I hope that that could possibly happen, but it's relatively rare. Um, so, so you mentioned the AIAW. Um, some of the listeners may not know what that is. Could, so could you explain what that is? And, and in particular, say something about the kind of philosophy about sports and competition that the AIAW had. Yeah, so the AIAW is the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. And it was basically um, the governing organization for women's sports um, prior to Title IX, um, and meanwhile, the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, had governed men's sports since, I think, it's something like 1905. Um, so women's sports um, had a different philosophy um, that isn't so different from what the men's sports philosophy was probably in the early 1900s, mm. um, when sports were part of physical education programs and they were truly seen as part of the academic experience that um you know it was part of a physical education program um and there's a whole interesting history of of football Mm -hmm. and how that evolved and the players started to want professional kinds of coaches and um it really started to shift the culture of athletics to become more commercial and become more quasi-professional in colleges and universities. And so men's sports kind of took off in that way and separated itself from physical education departments where they began. And for all kinds of reasons, women's sports stayed connected to the academic mission of the university, to physical education programs for much longer. Uh, And a lot of the reasons for that, there's a lot of reasons for that that are you know, sort of complicated, but mm-hmm. um, certainly one of them was the idea that um, women weren't really suited for these high-level kinds of competitive situations, that that might put too much stress on women um, mm-hmm. physically and mentally, and, you know, going back to these sort of Victorian notions of what women could handle. Um, and so the idea was that they needed to be protect women needed to be pr- sort of protected 
um, in a more um, play-oriented, less competitive kind of activity and kind of environment. And so um, the AIAW really supported um, the idea of women's sports as integral to education. Um, you know, they supported competition, but um, it really was more focused on, I think, what they called some of the women's athletic directors talked about a spirit of play. Um, and, you know, the AIW was a really interesting organization that gave many leadership opportunities for um, women athletic directors, women coaches. Um, it was it really stood for women's self-determination in many ways. And it tried to be, a, and was, I think in many ways, a very democratically run kind of organization that tried to give a voice to all the delegates. Um, and it was a place where women athletic leaders could um, develop their own leadership skills. Um, but I think the, the catch sort of was that some of their the athletes who were being um, governed and represented by women's athletic leaders who were, you know, dyed-in-the-wool physical educators, mm -hmm. and really most of them did not um, want to mirror the men's trajectory toward commercialization and professionalization, wanted to stay closer to the academic vision of sport. And so there started to be what I call in, um, in my book an identity crisis um, among leaders of women's sports. And, you know, even among some of the athletes, the women athletes, because some of the higher skilled athletes were really seeking out, wanted wanted opportunities for high-level competition and felt um, held back and constrained by the AIAW philosophy. And some of them even, even sued the AIAW <laughs> to have the right to have scholarships, just like the men were. And, mm -hmm. you know, and along with that came recruiting and all kinds of, you know, things that have actually been problems in some cases for men's sports, um, leading to some corruption and all kinds of problems that have, you know, plagued the commercial enterprise. So you could see reasons why these women physical educators had good reasons to be concerned about what following the path of the men might bring. And yet you could also see how it was um, kind of unfair to women students who weren't having the opportunity to get their college paid for with a scholarship, who weren't getting the opportunity to compete at the highest levels. And um, I call one um, chapter of my book, um, Do Women Want the Rose Bowl? Because that was sort of reflecting a question that came mm -hmm. up when football coach from University of Michigan, Bo Schimbeckler, was kind of lobbying President Ford um, about the Title IX regulations and was fearful that, hey, if we let women kind of go down the path of, if we give them these opportunities, um, aren't they going to want these Rose Bowl kind of experiences that are so fabulously celebrated for men? Um, and then can we really afford to share funds and make that equally available? So that was, you could start to see why Title IX became controversial because it meant um, if you couldn't increase the pot of resources, then they were going to have to be divided and shared in some way that they had not needed to be in the past when women were, um, you know, kind of in their physical education, more play-oriented, less competitive, and less expensive mm, <laughs> athletic yeah. programs. I, I would like you to give just little brief capsule summaries of some of the important players, and a couple of them you've mentioned before. Um, and, and, and so they might be briefer, but but let's start with Kathy 
I, 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 it's been a long, so I grew up in Michigan. I should know how to pronounce DeBoer. I think that's right. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually perfect. Um, I used this, my book in my class this semester, and I was surprised at how hard of a time students had pronounced <laughs> her name because it just seems natural to me. But yeah, DeBoer. <laughs> so maybe can you say a little bit about, you've already talked about her career after Michigan State, maybe a little bit about how she came to Michigan State um, and, and how she came to be equipped to, for the role she's going to end up playing. Yeah, well, she did grow up in Grand Rapids. Um, and she was the daughter of a college professor, I believe, at hmm. Calvin College. I hope mm -hmm. I have that right. Um, and just an incredibly competitive, was a competitive, incredibly competitive girl and young woman and um, college student at Calvin College, uh, really gifted in a variety of sports and also a good student, um, really intelligent young woman. And she, you know, I think just saw a chance for higher level, the kind of higher level competition that other young women like her were starting to seek out around that time um, when she looked uh, at Michigan State's women's sports program. And also um, the coach for women's basketball at Michigan mm -hmm. State, who had been hired relatively recently, Karen Langland, had also come from Grand Rapids, so I think there was kind of that connection there. And as we know, in work and sports, those networks are hugely important. So I think that it's not a complete coincidence that her um, connection with Karen Langland or their knowledge of each other in some way had something to do with her deciding to transfer. And I, you know, I think she also told me that, that there was a wider variety of academic programs at Michigan State, and I won't say that had nothing to do with her decision, uh -huh. but she certainly cited it as one reason, which would have made her AIAW um, <laughs> people happy to hear. Um, so yeah, and so she she went to Michigan State to play. I think actually probably even more so volleyball because mm -hmm. that was I think her her favorite sport, even though she was an amazing basketball player too um, and so she was on you know a highly successful volleyball team at Michigan State as well as a women's basketball team and she was also taking um, some women's studies courses and that was kind of one of my favorite things to learn about in researching for my book to see how academic studies actually yes. you know played a role in their activism mm -hmm. Um, because Kathy started to learn um, about feminism in some of her um, classes she was taking at Michigan State. And so when um, Mary Pollack was hired um, from the University of Illinois, where I think unbeknownst to Michigan State University, she'd been involved in a lot of activism around Title IX and women's sports and, and other issues of the day related to feminism, um, when she got to Michigan State to direct, when Mary Pollack got to Michigan State to direct um, the women's women's programs there, um, Title IX coordinator was just sort of one little footnote in her job, um, but uh, she had this background in uh, working at Illinois with women athletes and their their rights under the new Title IX. And so when Mary Pollack came to Michigan State, she started giving little talks to different groups around campus. Um, it wasn't just athletics. She talked to the, the veterinary school, the marching band, and, you know, all kinds of different places on campus about what Title IX meant for uh, um, access 
for women and men to um, areas of campus that maybe had been segregated in the past or people were excluded from because of their sex. And so one of the talks she gave was to coaches and Mark Pittman happened to be there because he was um, the women's cross country coach and also a graduate student in sociology. So he had some interest in you know, issues of social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had also become a fan of the women's basketball team and a good friend of Kathy's, Kathy DeBoer's. And his fellow um, sociology grad student friend, Bruce Alexander, the two of them started, you know, keeping statistics for the women's basketball team, kind of volunteering and and also enjoying just following their team. Mm -hmm. So I think probably it was Mark, as I recall, who first heard Mary Pollack saying, hey, there's this new law, Title IX, and here's what it guarantees women athletes. Um, And so he kind of had heard that and brought it back to Kathy and she was interest, getting interested in understanding feminism from an academic point of view at this time, and it also, of course, resonated with her own kind of um, sense of justice and competitive spirit and desire for more opportunities in athletics for herself and other women. Um, and so it, it kind of went from there, and she shared um, what she learned with her teammate, um, Marianne Mankowski, who's now actually a um, professor, assistant professor, uh, in and, you know, has become, I think, gosh, I'm thinking now, sociology, I think <laughs> it is. Um, and so she had, you know, also a lot of these um, commitment to social justice and interested in, in issues of fairness and social change. Um, and so there was kind of a fertile ground in a few of these women's basketball players um, for Mary Pollack's message about Title IX and what it might mean um, that they were entitled to um, in terms of more equal resources and opportunities. And so Kathy and uh, Marianne, who went by the name Cookie, um, and still does, um, went back to the, the team, the women's basketball team, and educated them, informed them a little bit about what they'd learned from hmm. Mary. And, um, you know, different things happened, not, nothing huge, but I think I called them micro-crises or something uh-huh. like that in the book, or that was probably Mark Pittman's words from his notes at the time. Um, and that was what was really great about working on this book. I had these incredibly detailed day-to-day notes that Mark Pittman took almost from the beginning of this whole series of events that unfolded related to Title IX. Um, but, you know, things happened where the women's basketball team had to raise their own money to go to a tournament they really wanted to be part of in New York. Um, you know, meanwhile, they looked over and saw their male counterparts going to things like that without having to go out and sell decals and try mm-hmm. to, you know, raise money that way. So little things like that would, would happen that sort of made them start to think, wait a minute, why does it have to be this way? Um, and they they were... Um, really very um, principled students, people. They weren't these crazy rebel rouser, you know, (laughs) people that you think of as maybe activists um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, And so they kind of followed the rules. They were like, okay, what do we do first? If we want to ask about this or complain about this, is there a process? And they, they really wanted to go through the proper channels. Um, so, so let me ask you about that. Um, so, so you talk about proper channel. One, one of the distinctive things is that Title IX at this point had been passed, 
but there were no regulations in effect at the time to lay out exactly how it's supposed to be implemented. Mm -hmm. uh, they were scheduled to go into effect not, not long from then, but they weren't in effect. So, so what is the right way at that point to pursue this kind of claim at a university? Hmm. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question and a good point. Um, because it was really a huge matter of interpretation and debate nationally. Mm -hmm. And institutions were genuinely struggling on one level to understand what it would mean for them and waiting to hear what the government decided. And in some cases, the government was, you know, changing its mind and giving some mixed messages. And so it was a confusing time in many ways. Um, but I think, you know, the students on the women's basketball team were told that Mary Pollock was responsible for coordinating Title IX. So uh -huh. the proper thing to do would be to let her know that they wanted to um, ask some questions about their rights and possibly file a complaint. Mm -hmm. So going internally through um, the university's standard processes for complaining about things like that um, is what I was referring to. Yeah. But you know, even in the the law around Title IX, that there that was one issue early on, whether it was okay to bypass those kind of internal step-by-step mm -hmm. -step complaint processes and you know file a lawsuit, or whether you had to show that you had exhausted all those administrative steps first. So so then if the appropriate path is Pollock, that makes Pollock's personality and rhetorical choices really important. So, so say something about Pollock's rhetorical strategies in pressing this uh, these initial concerns and then as they turned into a complaint, the complaint. Yeah, well, I think that Mary Pollock um, had an interesting rhetorical style for her job. And I think she saw her job as Title IX coordinator as more of an investigator. Mm. And um, and I think looking back, she realized that that wasn't what the university was looking for <laughs> from her. <laughs> that would not be the um, first time. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, she wasn't really, she, she had been um, really a graduate student working with women's programs at Illinois. I don't know that she necessarily fully understood all the politics of working as an administrator within a university. And I think Michigan State was a little more conservative at the time than Illinois, so it had a different culture too. Um, and she thought of herself as more of an investigator. Um, and, you know, I think what Michigan State and most universities often want from people in those positions is somebody to kind of smooth things over, to try to, you know, make complaints go away, um, and work things out, and maybe mediate, and, you know, things like that, not so much to try to really figure out what's, what's um, legitimate about a complaint mm. and to figure out how to resolve it. So, and she was an activist herself. She really saw an opportunity at Michigan State, and she meant this um, for the good of the institution, that Michigan State could be a leader, could be on the forefront of um, coming into compliance with Title IX. And she thought, wow, this is something that Michigan State can be proud of, yeah. and I can help the institution get there um, through my role as Title IX coordinator. And of course, Michigan State at the time was like every other institution in the country, that was not one of their goals to be, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. on the lead, at, the, at the lead of complying with Title IX. It wasn't 
anything that was going to be a badge of status for them in any way. So one of the things about the, so the context here about Michigan State matters, because for those of you who know anything about college and then professional athletics, Urban uh, Magic Johnson is recruited to Michigan State and seems to offer an already good basketball team a chance to be an elite basketball team at the same time as the football team, which had historically, well, not historically, but for a while now struggled, is still trying to compete with Ohio State and Michigan, University of Michigan. And so, at least as I read your book, one of the claims of, of, of Michigan State is, in fact, to take, to, to give women the resources that Title IX seems to demand would require or potentially require us to abandon our hopes in these more glamorous, more popular, more financially lucrative sports. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was definitely the fear. And you heard that at the time in the 70s from athletic directors saying Title IX is going to be the end of college football. Title mm -hmm. IX is going to be the end of men's college basketball. Um, you know, later on, you started to hear Title IX is going to be the end of um, men's wrestling, men's mm, swimming, mm -hmm, and some mm -hmm. of the not, you know, not high revenue producing men's sports. Um, but early on, the the fear, the rhetoric was all around, um, wow, this could be the end of college football. So certainly that was probably something that Michigan State thought about, too. You know, do we really want to be investing in Irvin Magic Johnson and our men's basketball program? Um, or do we want to be investing in women's basketball, women's volleyball? Um, which, you know, that I think that's one of the things that's really difficult about Title IX. It really is a separate yeah. but equal kind of law. And so, as we know, separate can never really be completely equal. And so um, the, the idea that somehow you could have both have it all, you know, women's and men's sports equally invested in, equally successful, each equally lucrative was just um, not something people could imagine. And in fact, I don't know that it, it really has ever come to be. Um, if we have an example of that somewhere, I don't know where it is today either. So, so you lay out an intellectual struggle between the, the policymakers at Michigan State and Mary Pollock about how to interpret Title IX with Mary Pollock arguing that it's very clear why, while the um, Office of Civil Rights Guidance changes uh, occasionally, it's pretty clear and increasingly clear that what is quote unquote revenue sports are included in Title IX. Mm -hmm. and, the and the Michigan State policymakers pushing back and saying, well, we, we need to think about Title IX, it's perfectly appropriate, but, but that does not include revenue sports that are not included. Um, so why do you think, why, why was that? Was that a, just simply an unwillingness to accept the implications of it on Michigan State's part? Or, um, I don't know, a cultural blindness to the, to the law? How do you explain that? Well, I think it was part of the debate at the time, and it certainly mm -hmm. wasn't just Michigan State. Um, yeah. You know, the Tower Amendment, Tower mm -hmm. Amendment 1, Tower Amendment 2. So this um, is John the Tower, the senator from Texas. Right. Um, and that's what he was proposing. Let's leave out these um, higher revenue producing men's sports from Title IX to protect the tradition of mm -hmm. you know, men's, men's sports in colleges in the United States. Um, so it was happening in Congress. Um, there were other lawsuits at, at the time. Um, I want to say 
um, one of them out on the West Coast. Uh, I think it was University of Washington, but mm-hmm. I could have that wrong. Maybe it was Washington State. I'm not sure. But same issue that a court found that they could not continue to exclude men's basketball and football from their Title IX equations. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it just seemed to take courts to have to tell schools that because mm-hmm. of this concern about sharing resources. So it, it started, you know, it, it was everywhere. It was pervasive. It wasn't just this blindness on Michigan State's part. It was this larger concern at every level. So one of the difficulties about Title IX is that the people carrying the argument are often athletes who then go ahead and graduate. Um, Mm. But this case is actually a little unique because you have two different kind of changes in the people leading the fight. One of them is the people who graduate, DeBoer, for example, but one of them is the fact that Mary Pollack ends up getting fired. So maybe you could say a little bit about each of those and how graduations in this firing change the the nature of the debate at Michigan State and and, and maybe a little bit about how Mary Pollock ended up getting fired. Okay. Um, Well, Mary Pollock basically was fired, I think, because, again, she was taking her job as Title IX coordinator way too seriously in the eyes of the administration. (laughs) They never envisioned you know, that this director of women's programs was going to be such a strong advocate for Title IX and really pushing the institution to actually even make a name for itself in terms of Mm -hmm. leading in Title IX compliance and asking for information about budgets and all kinds of things that no one really there, the other administrators didn't want her messing around with and looking into that carefully. And and I think that would have happened and and did happen. There were many Title IX coordinators who lost their jobs. Hmm. Um, It wasn't just Mary Pollock at Michigan State. It was um, something hmm. that also constrained a lot of um, women from athletic administrators, Title IX coordinators, from really pushing for change because they knew that could happen because it did happen. So she certainly wasn't the only person who suffered that fate. Um, but it actually, you know, like a lot of things, I guess. Um, with martyrdom kinds of uh, situations, <laughs> it has the opposite effect sometimes. Yeah. And I don't know that the women's basketball team would have had the cohesiveness, the will to continue on and to really keep pushing, um, especially as some of them graduated, like you say, um, if she hadn't been fired. I think that really, hmm. any any of the players who were kind of thinking, oh, you know, is this really worth it? Um, that gave them another reason to sort of get motivated because they saw her as somebody who cared about them and cared about their rights. And then, you know, when she was fired, they, they sort of rallied. So I think that that was a motivating factor, actually, maybe the motivating factor that ultimately um, got them to hire an attorney. Hmm. Um, But the graduating, the issue of students graduating is huge. You know, in part of the book, I write about Roland Haffer at Temple University, which was a, whole um, lawsuit going on really simultaneously um, that had some interesting similarities and differences. Um, But I think a common strategy for attorneys is to drag out cases until the complainants um, tire or just get um, beaten down enough to give in or let go of it. And then in colleges, you know, people do graduate. And um, Roland Haffer there, she stayed in touch with, uh, she was a badminton player actually at Temple. Huh. And she, she stayed in touch for years afterwards um, as her case, you know, dragged out. 
um, and it and paid a pretty big price for um, mm-hmm. all that work that she did, even after she was graduated and working um, as a physical education teacher um, in Long Island. Um, and at Michigan State, you know, it was similar in that somebody, there had to be someone to pass off the torch to, in effect. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Kathy DeBoer was a senior when she kind of got all this started. And so she, you know, was a catalyst, but then she went off to play in the new um, Women's Basketball League, which was a precursor to the WNBA. She went on to pe- play professional basketball, and so she was out of town, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, she did have to come back to testify in a hearing. Um, and her friend Mark Pittman was still coaching, um, and he kind of became a kind of glue that connected um, communication between um, players as they graduated and people who were still there um, because he was very committed to the cause. And so he, I think without someone like him um, and also his friend Bruce Alexander and Mary Jo Hardy and a, a group that he called the Cabal, Cabal um, <laughs> they, um, they were a really, I think, a necessary part of this at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. That you, you really need a group or a person who's willing to go go the long haul and do that kind of behind-the-scenes sort of grunt work and unappreciated work that can sustain um, a long-term struggle. And so there was a group of friends willing to do that with and for the women's basketball team at Michigan State. And then the players themselves um, stepped up when they had to. Um, Carol Hutchins was willing to put her name on the lawsuit, um, and she's still coaching softball at the University of Michigan and is huh. an incredible, um, the most, the winningest coach ever in University of Michigan athletics history. Huh. Um, and so, you know, she's still got softball player athletes there today who are discovering this case. <laughs> I'm <laughs> saying, wait a minute, Hutchins versus MSU, what's this mm-hmm. all about? Um, and, but then she graduated, and so, you know, if it was going to become a class action case, which it needed to if it were going to continue, who was going to be willing to put their name on that case? And, mm-hmm. and Deb Traxinger stepped up to do that as a freshman at MSU. Um, imagine, you know, coming to play basketball at MSU as a freshman and being asked to have your name on a class action lawsuit your first year. Um, you know, that wasn't something easy to do or easy to decide to do. Uh, so, you know, it's sort of a combination of people who were willing to make sacrifices and stick their neck out and put their name on things and take a risk. So one of the one of the avenues, as I understand it, that that these athletes and their, I don't know, co-conspirators, members of the cabal, whatever, um, were advised to take was a quieter, more internal kind of approach where the rhetoric rhetorical style would be different, where the political strategy would be different. And they chose not to do that. Um, so what is this alternative strategy and, and why did they why did they ignore it? Well, I think they might have ignored it partly because they didn't really understand university yeah. politics that well. Mm-hmm. I mean how well do students understand university politics? <laughs> Really, you know, from a faculty administrative point of view, it's a whole different world. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think about someone like Gwen Norell, who was the faculty representative to the NCAA and, you know, was the first woman in that role, hmm. I think, in the Big Ten. And so it was, again, a real kind of milestone 
um, for Michigan State was a leader in appointing a woman to that position. But then, you know, as the first woman in that position in the Big Ten, did she want to be seen as this, you know, feminist, Title IX, radical person, or did she want to be fitting in with the other um, her Mm -hmm. colleagues? Um, and you know maybe would be willing would have been willing to support the women athletes at Michigan State, but wasn't going to be willing to do it in a really upfront, out there kind of way, um, and maybe not um, wanting to go as far as they wanted to go in terms of equality. Because you know I think a lot of times younger people are more idealistic, and Mary Pollock yeah. certainly was equality meant equality. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't looking for compromises. They didn't understand why there needed to be compromises. Um, if there, in fact, did, which there probably did with anything political, you know, compromise is part of it. Um, so I don't think, um, you know, they just thought, well, why can't we just follow? Why, why aren't our, why aren't our um, coaches and administrators and university presidents, why don't they just want to follow the law? Why don't they want to follow the rules? Why can't we just follow the explicit written rules Mm-hmm. Um, to get our voices heard, to get um, fairness and justice. And that was just a very idealistic um, way of looking at the situation instead of thinking, hmm, who are the power brokers behind the scenes? You know, who? what are the different roles people are playing? How can we work that system? You know, who should we really be lobbying? Who should we be meeting with? Um, yeah, I, you know, and even Mark Pittman and Bruce Alexander, they were a little older, they were graduate students, but they weren't really insiders either um, Mm -hmm. in these networks behind the scenes that these students didn't really have a a way of understanding. And certainly Mary Pollack, as a 30-year-old activist coming into this position, she didn't really see that either. Um, They were just trying to do their jobs and didn't quite get um, how you might go about it in a different way. And who knows, that, that other way might not have worked as well either. So they end up going to court rather than filing a complaint with the OCR, Office of Civil Rights. And in fact, well, they did they both. To... They did ah, both. okay, go ahead. So why then go to court? Well, they they did file with OCR. Um, yeah, I'm actually trying to remember what made them not just wait for that. And... You know, I think it, it had to do with once they did get an attorney, which they did mm-hmm. after Mary Pollock was fired. Mm-hmm. So once, I guess once you hire an attorney and agree to work with one, although they didn't <laughs> hire her in the sense that they were going to pay her anything because they didn't have any money, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you sort of start down that path. And their attorney, Jean Ludwith King, um, helped them do all of the above, basically. She helped mm-hmm. them file um, with the Michigan Civil Rights Department. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there's ba- there were basically and still are kind of mini Title IX, I guess, at the state level, mm-hmm. um, where you can file almost the same kind of a complaint that you would with at the federal level. And so they did that um, with the state of Michigan, and that was something that their attorney suggested they do. Um, they filed um, with OCR, um, but OCR was so backed up. I mean, yeah. I think that was part of it, too. You know, they might have had to wait forever. Um, the Women's Equity Action League, you know, around that time had filed a lawsuit against OCR because they weren't dealing 
um, with all the many complaints that were piling in from around the country. Um, the government was not dealing with them quickly. They were letting them pile up. So it wasn't like OCR was taking action. They were backlogged. They were, you know, uncertain, too, about how to proceed. So um, their lawyer at Michigan State, the lawyer that the women's basketball team started working with, um, she was concerned about getting them some justice, um, mm -hmm. not just women's basketball at Michigan State into the future, but these particular women right there and then. She wanted their particular material situation to be improved um, and not for them just to be a symbol or, you know, someone helping a group of people that helped future players, although certainly she saw that they could do that. Um, but and, and, and it ended up working out that her advice was good, I think, for them in that way, because um, Deb Traxinger, who became um, the named plaintiff on the class action suit, who was a freshman at the time, um, one thing that came out of the settlement um, or the process of, it wasn't actually part of the settlement, but the process of Michigan State having to mm -hmm. deal with this lawsuit, having to deal with all these complaints, um, they, Deb ended up with a full-ride scholarship um, hmm. that she almost certainly would not have had. And she's kind of an interesting person to talk to um, because she, when she read my book, um, you know, she learned a lot about um, the bigger context beyond just her experience of it. Um, and one of the things she did later in life is she became a coach and a referee um, and a biology teacher in high school and a union president um, for the teachers union. And I, it was interesting because one of the things she said she really appreciated in reading the book was seeing um, from this other viewpoint all the little threads of communication and miscommunication that mm -hmm. maybe could have been handled differently by people on all sides, by the players, by the coaches, by the title line coordinator, by everyone, by the lawyer. Um, little moments where, gosh, you know, had you gone and sat down and talked to these people in person, had you responded to that, had you not overlooked that sentence in that letter, um, just all those little threads, those little threads of communication that sort of um, lead to a conflict escalating. Hmm. She could really, and she wished she had, you know, had a chance to see it differently at the time, but even more so, she thought about her work as, um, the union president of the teachers union and how what she learned about rhetoric um, from reading this book and looking at her own experience through that lens, um, how it could have helped her in that role too. Well, I've, I've used a lot of your time. Let's, let's, um, I just have a couple concluding questions about the book or, or more broadly, maybe about the implications of the book and, and, and about title line. And one of them you, you talked about, um, Separate and equal, never really being equal. Um, this is, of course, the, I don't know if it's a compromise or a concession or how to term it, but the kind of settlement that comes out of the, the uh, attempt to regulate and, and evaluate, to come up with criteria for evaluating Title IX compliance. What are the alternatives? Is is this 20 or 30 years? Well, let's do the math in my head. 40 years down the road, is this an appropriate kind of arrangement? Well, you know, I have a colleague who's a business professor, and her argument mirrors that of some of the feminists who were not athletes at the time that all this was being worked out, what, how Title IX would, would work. 
Um, and she just believes that this whole separate separation of men's and women's sports just leads to um, problems for women's sense of themselves later mm-hmm. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the and and I think there's some truth to that um, because in many cases, even though women's sports has gotten so much more support and so much more respect, um, it's still seen as secondary mm-hmm. and really second class in in many ways. And I think women students know that, women athletes know that, um, and it's, and I think it's still a problem. You know, and I think I experienced that myself. I got a lot of um, attention, positive attention and positive, you know, resources that were very helpful and skills and, you know, habits and all kinds of things that came out of my experience in sports. But I also was always aware that we were the women's sports and we were second in many ways. And I think it, it does do something to you psychologically, as people argued with race and segregation, same thing. Um, and so it is an issue. Um, I, I can't really argue. There's a, there's a book that came out that I mentioned in my book. It's called Playing with the Boys, and it really makes that argument that separate can never mm-hmm. be equal and that mm-hmm. we need to really radically rethink this you know, separate approach that we've um, you know, continued to, to go along with. Um, I guess I can't really go there because I do... I do think in the end the pros outweigh the cons um, for women to have the opportunities to participate in sports um, in in our own on our own playing field, so to speak. Um, but I think it would be it would be interesting and probably important to keep seeking out more ways to have um, into more integrated sporting opportunities and maybe mm-hmm. in even sports we don't tend to think about. You know, I mentioned Roller Half, Roland Haffer playing badminton. Um, yeah. You know, maybe there's other sports out there where men and women can compete together in ways that we don't think about as much. Um, and I know a lot of track teams and swim teams have started to practice together and, you mm-hmm. know, almost have this integrated experience, at least in the practice uh, part of their competition. Um, I don't know. I think there is something to be said for that. And then I guess on a whole other side of things, you know, if, if even if you don't go there, um, Title IX still has this provision in it that it's still okay for schools to comply by showing that they're starting, they're continuing to make progress. Right. You know, even a little bit of progress. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, with all deliberate, the whole with all deliberate speed idea, is, <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty problematic when this many years after Title IX, it's still okay to show you're trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we're serious about Title IX and the way it's laid out, I think it's probably time to stop saying that just trying is okay. Um, I think um, we can probably get more serious about saying, you know, here's here's what the standards are, here's what equity means, and it's, it's you know, you know enough, you have enough, You've had enough time to figure out how to start implementing that in a serious way, um, but it is it is expensive, you know. I do think for the government to be the one policing this and mm. coming in and doing extensive investigations, and there tends to be this whole kind of negotiating that happens afterwards, and schools are always given more time, mm-hmm. um, and then it requires more follow-up and more checking, and it, it's really too bad. So I think there is. 
something to be said for a, a simpler way to implement Title IX. And, you know, we've had, back in 2002, there was a Blue Ribbon Federal mm-hmm. level committee that re-looked at everything and kind of ended up saying, let's keep it how it is. Um, but they were more looking at ways to um, provide less equality, I think, um, yeah. instead of more. And mm-hmm. it's too bad that that um, conversation couldn't have been framed differently. What if we did um, require resources to just be split in half, um, give women their half, give men their half, and let the women athletes and the men athlete, male athletes have more say as athletes in what, how they want their sports programs to look. Mm-hmm. And women students and men students, um, what do you really want? Do you really want to have all these resources going into a, sort of a professional kind of football and men's basketball program? Is that what, and, and maybe that's what the women and men and students uh, would decide they do want. Um, but ultimately, I think there are other other options, and I think that's sort of um, a conversation that I wish could happen more about. Well, what are the other possibilities? Um, and getting students involved in weighing in. Um, but there's a whole consciousness raising process that needs to go on there. A to understand a somewhat complicated law that isn't just straightforward splitting things in half like a lot of people mm-hmm. think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that education process is huge, and I love the fact that you've created a game with a colleague <laughs> that um, gets students thinking about that in a in a way um, that sometimes they can't understand as easily from even reading a book, although I tried to make it happen more easily through a story. Um, mm-hmm. But a game, a story, um, I think there's a lot of education yet to be done before we can even have a real rethinking of um, how what might be more appropriate um, than this kind of comp- complicated and problematic separate but equal. Now, I'm really struck by one of the sentences, and it's, it's, it's a terrible wrong for, a, for an interview to ask her, interviewer to ask the interviewee about one sentence in a 350-page book, but I hope it's a clear sentence. And it's a wonderful sentence, and, and, and you wrote it. So, But you write about the logic of unregulated capitalism collides with the logic of regulation and civil rights. And this is really what I see in my students, especially when they play the game, but, it, but in other, other circumstances as well, is that there's all of these kind of rhetorical but also ethical claims on sports that sometimes work together but often collide and it's hard to imagine easy kinds of compromises right yeah i think if you had to sum up what the book is about that's a great sentence to use Mm -hmm. because i think it's about that very conflict and i think it, it goes against um you know, the, the logic of unregulated capitalism um, is something that is there on full display when you see, you know, the, the huge celebration of men's sports that we see, you know, kind of every weekend. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, it's really hard to imagine unraveling that um, as fully as you might have to, to really take the regulation side as seriously as um, I, you know, I would like to see it taken. Yeah, yeah. So, so we could go on in this conversation for a long time, but I, but I think it's probably time to wrap up. And so I always ask guests um, one or two last questions. And, and the first one, you're lucky enough to be on spring break. Um, my spring break is still a couple weeks away, uh-huh. um, and my students are very resentful of you right now when I mentioned that today. 
Um, so what what kind of books were meaningful? Maybe you could suggest a book or two or maybe a movie um, that you found meaningful in this that, that my students or I should spend spring break reading. Hmm. Well, one thing that comes to mind, I did watch a lot of, I tried to find any documentary I could that related in any way to Title yeah. Mine, and there's really a, a classic one. It was really kind of the first one, and I still think it's a, one worth watching, hmm. which is called A Hero for Daisy. Um, and it's really, it's the story of Chris Ernst and um, the Yale rowing team in 1976, uh -huh. and it's, it's mentioned in my book as well. And so it's sort of fun to watch this documentary um, because it, it really brings to life one of the early Title IX struggles that did not, that did not go to court. Um, uh -huh. And in fact, so it sort of gives an example of another approach where um, some Ivy League students really understood did understand some of the politics there and how to get the media involved and how to hmm. get change um, some changes for their team um, and it's a you know it's a good movie so that's hmm. one of the early documentaries and still I think a classic one that's really worth watching um, and then when I think about other books related to um, title nine I think um, there's a there's a ton of really good ones and if you just want to understand the law itself I, I always like Linda Carpenter and Vivian Acosta's yeah. you know mm -hmm. Title Nine, simple name of the book mm -hmm. um, you know early on I, I was looking for stories uh, written by women athletes about their experiences and um, I enjoyed Leslie Hayward's, Hayward's book um, where she talks about her experience as a cross-country runner um, in the 70s and what it was like to be, um, the book's called Pretty Good for a Girl. And I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting book psychologically because it talks about um, that feeling of superiority or you can almost get from being the, the girl who's the exception. And I mm -hmm. think that's kind of an interesting psychology that is part of all this too. Um, and that book also gets into um, some issues of um, sexual um, well, really, I guess it was rape by a coach um, that hmm. crosses over with some of the more contemporary um, applications of Title IX in education. So it's, it's sort of an interesting crossover there. Um, Playing with the Boys is an interesting book because it really makes that argument that separate cannot be equal. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's challenging in that way. Um, I just pulled up a book off my shelf that I remember reading. You know, it's not an academic book. Mm -hmm. It's a um, very, it's a book meant for a very broad public audience. It's an easy read. Um, I just remember reading this along the way. It's called Playing Like a Girl. Um, hmm. And it just really connected with me as a female athlete um, in a really academic kind of way. Um, I think that the our lives through team sports so it just it was a book that I remember reading when I was doing my research and it, it connected with me and it was a sort of a lighter lighter read although it hmm. brought out a lot of emotion um, and reminded me of some of the ways in which being a female athlete was um, challenging so let me ask you so so you and I both work on this um, in some sense, so, so this is maybe a primary research for you, field for you, but you also do a lot of administrative work, and so you write when you can on the side. My 
I work at a small school and to some extent my primary field is comparative genocide and I do sports studies as a break. But what I was struck at was the relatively small number of kind of common texts about Title IX that showed up in your bibliography that I see consistently. Am I right in, would, would you agree, and maybe you won't, that that research on Title IX is, I don't want to say underdeveloped, but not as intensive as I would have imagined? Hmm. Well, I think it's tricky because there's a lot that's been done in, in the law journals. Yes. So, and I don't have um, all of those, obviously, in, in my bibliography, mm -hmm. but you could certainly spend, a, you know, if you're interested in the law, a lot of time reading in the law journals, and it's really good reading. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't often hear many people say that about law journals. I know. But... It's sort of strange, but I actually enjoyed that reading <laughs> uh -huh. on this research project. Um, I, you know, I would have to say that um, that was that was some of the most enjoyable reading I did for this book. Huh. Um, and I, I think you mentioned um, Brake's book. Um, I'm forgetting yeah, her yeah. first name. Um, Deborah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she's a she's a law professor. Um, and yeah. That so her, that, that her, book is my cheat sheet for all of those law journals that I don't want to read. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't want to go into the journals, that's a good book. Um, I, yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that. Um, I think it's a really cross-disciplinary mm -hmm. topic, and maybe mm -hmm. that's why um, the bibliographies don't look as standard, mm -hmm. because um, that's what was fun in terms of writing and researching Title IX, because I got to go into so many different disciplines. Yeah. But I think maybe that's also why there's, you know, and I had the chance to go to a couple conferences that were, um, on anniversaries of Title IX and brought together mm. people from lots of different disciplines. But I think that cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary nature of the topic maybe is why there's not um, a real sustained conversation and a real clear set of common mm. texts. Well, that makes sense. Well, so the last question, um, what are you working on now? Well, as we talked about earlier, I'm directing the university writing program mm -hmm. at Valparaiso University. So um, I'm very interested in argument across the curriculum. So I'm, you know, working on how faculty are implementing our writing, argument writing into different disciplines and how we can assess that and measure students' progress um, throughout their time at the university. So that's, you know, sort of me back to my writing um, yeah roots as a writing researcher. Um, I have a lot, I was mentioning to you when we chatted earlier, that I have a lot of um, video of the interviews I did for this book. I have a little trailer mm -hmm. for a documentary film. Um, I would really like to do something with all that material because a lot of work went into gathering it and there's some really compelling um, video. So um, when I can find the time, it would be really interesting to create some kind of a multimedia book or site to, uh, or even instructors kind of edition to go with this book um, that would provide a different way into it in terms of reading it and teaching it. And then I have a similar set of materials related to um, the uh, one of the cases in Brown versus Board of Education that came out of huh. um, Farmville, Virginia, and a, a girl who was a high school student in the 50s named Barbara Johns who 
um, also led another um, student kind of protest that uh, ended up in the Supreme Court. Um, so I interviewed a lot of people that knew her and sort of studied her as a communicator, as a rhetor. Um, and again, I have video um, and a kind of version of her story that focuses on rhetoric and communication that I have, that I worked on um, with a colleague, Jen Mooney. So I need to um, find a way to do something with all these materials. <laughs> um, so I have I have almost too many projects, I guess, is the answer to that question. Well, academics are rarely accused of not being busy, so... <laughs> but it sounds like a great list, uh, and I wish you luck. Uh, and I want to say thank you again for uh, joining us here, and um, we much appreciate it. Okay, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Kelly. You've been listening to an interview with Kelly Bellinger about her new book, Invisible Seasons, Title IX and the Fight for Equity in College Sports, published by Syracuse University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for new books and sports, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time, but until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.